This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I feel like the kind of media you consume and tracks with at a young age definitely creates your subconscious mental architecture. The 90s video games and films are just always, always there. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of The Poetry Review. And today I'm going to be talking to Will Harris, whose sequence, The White Jumper, appears in excerpted form in the winter 2018 issue of the Poetry Review. Hello, Will. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi. Will's work has appeared in the review several times. In 2017, we published his poem, Say, which was subsequently shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. And a year before that, he appeared in the magazine for, I think, the first time um, with two poems, which was in the winter 2016 issue edited by Morris Reardon and Sarah Howe. Will Harris is a writer of mixed Anglo-Indonesian heritage, born and based in London. He's an assistant editor at the Rialto and a fellow of the Complete Works 3. His debut pamphlet of poems, All This Is Implied, was published by Happenstance in 2017, and Mixed Race Superman, an essay, was published by Peninsula Press in May 2018. He's recently been awarded the Arts Foundation Poetry Fellowship, and his first collection, Rendang, will appear from Granta in 2020. We're going to hear Will read some excerpts from The White Jumper, and we thought it'd be nice to divide the poem into three parts. So we'll hear the first part now and we'll listen to the rest of the poem as we go along through the podcast so will we'd love to hear from the white jumper from the white jumper running and jumping from one grassy platform to another i stop on the next patch of grass branches so arranged as to focus a beam of light on it white and gleaming against the green of the grass the white jumper the white jumper the white We were sitting upstairs and in the whitest end-of-day light, the walls white too. It felt not just like we were above ground, but that in spite of being in Covent Garden, we were on a ridge above a forest, looking down, our feet in thicket dark, our heads in thickest stars. I hadn't seen Hugo in years. At primary school, we would stay up late and play Sonic the Hedgehog, passing the controller back and forth when one of us died. Run, jump, jump, run, jump, run, run. One night, His grandma screamed at us in Urdu. She wore a plain white nightie. We stopped laughing, or we tried laughing quietly. By the time we had completed a level, we could run through each jump without looking. On the way home, I ran past a pret, a spaghetti house, a five guys, a bella Italia, the path lit by the lights of passing cars, the pith of a discarded pizza. Pret, spaghetti house, five guys, bella Italia. Crossing the road, a car honked, its owner shouting through his closed window, Look where you're going, cunt. I was looking for the white jumper. The Nazis admired Caspar David Friedrich for his blood and soil vision. In several paintings, two friends contemplate the moon, which seems to be exploding. One shows the blast in its white heat, another has the sky a darker blue, the moon dark too. The moon is down, I have not heard the clock. A friend rests his hand against another's shoulder to console him. I know that blood stands for race and soil for nation, but blood and soil makes me think of bloodied soil. Do some people imagine themselves in the same relation to their place of birth as a scab to a wound? Thank you, Will. So you've written about the conception of the white jumper in our Behind the Poem feature, which listeners can find on the website. 
And although your piece doesn't explain the poem, which is sort of thankful in a way, it's like a, a fascinating insight into the medley of different things that led up to it. And I wondered if you could touch a little bit on that. I had a commission to write a poem responding to the theme of otherness in the work of Emily Bronte for the bicentenary celebration of her birth. So I had to write this piece, which was going to be performed at Haworth. And I had a few months where I knew I had to do this and, at this, and I wasn't really sure how to do it. I read Wuthering Heights, I read her poems. Uh, at the same time, I had this dream rattling around in the back of my head about this white jumper. Basically, rather than writing explicitly about Emily Bronte, I thought it would be interesting if I kept a journal where I tried to interpret the dream in different ways. And it seemed like a really banal dream. It was this dream about me running through a forest and I see this white jumper and I've been jumping from ledge to ledge and then I get to this point where I can't jump to the next ledge. It's too far and there's a white jumper on it. And it was a really banal dream, but it just stuck with me. And I thought it would be interesting to try and kind of live with it and think about different contexts in which its meaning might shift and change over a period of time. Because I was, again, immersed in Emily Bronte's work, it felt kind of true to the logic and obsessive, dream-haunted psychodrama of her novel. Well, I was particularly interested in the dream aspect. I think you mentioned that in the cover letter when you submitted the poem. I was sort of really intrigued by the way you described what was going on in the writing of the poem. And I'm really interested in dreams and how they interact with poems so I guess my ears sort of pricked up at that yeah. I mean it's a bit of a funny area because some people can be a bit scathing about dreams like oh it's all a bit wishy-washy or something and you actually said in your behind the poem piece in the past I've probably been the kind of person to dismiss dream talk obviously in this case the dream kind of had its own way but it's interesting to hear that yeah you were taking notes did you kind of use the dream as a prompt or even like a the way you might work with a piece of art or something yeah, I guess it was kind of like working with this source text, which I didn't fully understand, except the source text was inside of my subconscious. When I had this dream, I mean, it literally meant nothing to me, but for some reason it stuck with me. So the process of writing was thinking about different books I was reading, different experiences I had. So during that same period, my grandma passed away and there was a lot of whiteness in the funeral. It just took on all these different shapes and forms, this jumper, and it seemed suddenly like it was this overwhelmingly significant thing. Because in a weird way, I hadn't really thought that much about whiteness before I'd started writing this poem. It's essentially a poem about about whiteness, which doesn't explicitly mention race. And whiteness as this kind of state, which was always something beyond me, it was something I was surrounded by. My dad's English. I went to a you know majority white Roman Catholic primary school. There was always this weird tension where I was like among them and, and also other. And I think there was a point where people started to kind of single me out and identify me as, as different. And it was it was kind of like reaching the that ledge and realizing that actually this thing I thought I had that was part of me was in fact this separate entity, this like outfit, this costume which was beyond me. And that was one interpretation that only occurred to me like several months into writing about this white jumper and this idea of whiteness as like a separate thing outside of myself which was really useful I mean as a reader it certainly seemed that one of the biggest themes in the poem is the color white mm. it seems very significant and symbolic but at the same time it's quite elusive so there's something compelling about it but hard to pin down it made me think of Claudia Rankin talking about there being a need to study whiteness as a racial construct 
because it's seen as neutral and it's this invisible thing. And that's what makes it very difficult to deconstruct. I felt like the poem captures that because it's like this glimmering icon, but the speaker in the poem is running after it, trying to... Yeah, I think when I thought of whiteness and when I was working on that essay, Mixed Race Superman, I always thought of it as an invisible vantage point. I always think about the image that Emerson uses in his essay, Nature, of being this transparent eyeball. That is like the central image to how whiteness is constituted. It's this like porous boundary between you and the natural world. You can interact with it in this way that people who are marked as non-white can't. But then suddenly this dream made me see it in a different way as something that was separate outside, that was actually a constructed, knitted together costume. When I was thinking what to ask you, I was sort of reading a little bit about Wuthering Heights. It's a long time since I've read it. And I came across a piece that was talking about debates that exist regarding whether Heathcliff is black. And yeah, I just wondered if you were sort of aware of that or if that kind of like... Yeah, no, I I did read into that. And yeah, no, it's pretty incontestable that he's either black or there's an interesting school of thought that suggests he's Irish. There were a lot of Irish orphans around in, in Liverpool around then could have been adopted. But then the status of the Irish and of black immigrants was fairly similar in that period. I guess I was uncomfortable about just tackling it in a more of a straight on way. And I was more interested in the theme of degradation that runs through it, whatever his exact status or colouring, which in a way is, by the by, he represents this force of degradation to Cathy's pureness. Once he enters this sealed off world, it can only spell destruction for it. The poem, if you read it without reading your sort of behind the poem piece or hearing this discussion, you wouldn't be thinking about Emily Bronte or Mm. Heathcliff or anything. But I'd find it so fascinating that there's all these different threads that can be unpicked. And sometimes the threads are not ones that you've knowingly put in there like the poem teaches you something in a way I find sometimes a poem I'll be like oh gosh that's about that and I didn't know how does that happen (laughs) yeah exactly then that comes back to the dream thing and this was quite new to me I tried to let the poem lead me or the subconscious part of myself lead me in the creative process which I often struggle to do yeah in the hope that I would go somewhere more interesting with it Well, maybe that's a good moment to find out where you go next in the poem. So we'll hear the second section that you were going to read. This next section relates more to my grandma and my mum's relationship with her and my grandma's passing last year. I asked if she was scared, my mum translating. Of what? The coup? No, she was brave. In Sumatra once, having paid our respects at the tomb of her husband, we drove into the jungle. Everywhere was green. We stopped by a store and the driver left us to fetch water when men came out from behind a truck. She gripped the overhead handle. The white blades of their machetes gleamed. Everywhere was green. Bob recounts a dream. I see a green meadow and a white coffin. I'm afraid that my mother is in it. But I open the lid and luckily it is not my mother but me. Bedbound, her hair grew out, black strands white at the roots. Later they lay her in a white frilled coffin in a marble room and marked the forty days of mourning wearing only white. Lid and lip are little words, little things too. The short eye associated with lightness and pith. The pith of my system, said Coleridge, is to make the senses out of the mind, not the mind of the senses. The mind's white rind, not the white rind's mind. I want to call her closed lids buds, because shut they look like petals, tucked away, 
which could at any moment bud. At her wake, she asked for pearls to be placed inside her nostrils and between her lips and on her lids, to light her to the afterlife and stop her eyes from growing in this world again. I also wanted to ask you about narrative. I'd say a lot of your poems are quite narrative-driven, but I felt like The White Jumper sort of remixes the idea of narrative. There's definitely not any kind of linear narrative, but there's certain sort of pockets of narrative in it. I suppose I wondered what you think about narrative as something that's sort of you're very conscious of or if it's to do yeah. with your reading or sort of your I don't think I don't feel like I'm that conscious of using narrative but then one of the main things I'm interested in is personhood or how the self is constituted in a poem and the stories we tell about ourselves and yeah that by extension is narrative I mean I w- I've always thought of myself as being like a terrible storyteller anecdotalist I like always forget details I kind of find it impossible to tell stories that's very funny to hear some of your poems have really compelling stories in them like I'm thinking of the holy man I think some people can think that oh, a poem shouldn't be narrative or if you're talking about a poem being narrative that's there's some sort of criticism implied for me that's not at all the case I'm really into poems that are both telling stories and doing all the other things that poems can do I think I did go through a phase of really liking narrative poems or dramatic monologues. And maybe that is somewhere in the background. Those big Robert Frost dramatic monologues like Home Burial or West Running Brook or Browning's famous monologues. I think when I was younger, when I wasn't really sure what to write about, I would sometimes make up personas and write in them. And maybe that is somewhere in the background. But now when I write, I'm just trying to follow a train of thought or I'm trying to make sense of an experience and it sometimes just falls into narrative sequence I guess I don't plot anything I write particularly another thing I wanted to ask you about was video games which is a slightly personal interest because I've recently started dipping my toe into the world of video <laughs> games <laughs> this was an aspect of the white jumper that I really love that the the opening seems to be involving always very reminiscent of a platform game and then you've got Mm. this refrain run jump run and I've read other of your poems I think Halo 2 that was in the poetry review a few years back used that as a jumping off point I guess yeah and yeah I suppose I wondered if you're sort of conscious of that being a source of inspiration or it's just a feature of your life and therefore it ends up in the poems well when I was working on the poem I was remembering a period of my life in which me and one friend in particular we were just play video games all night, platform games, Sonic the Hedgehog or Super Mario, where you just have to play the level again and again, just so you can master like jumping at the exact right time. Maybe games haven't moved that far from it. The same thing makes them exciting, that sense of frustration. But the fact that I spent so many hours doing it, I was thinking must have hardwired my brain in a particular way, but manifested in that (laughs) dream. They get into your head in a way since I've been playing a few games, the sort of atmosphere of your brain that creates the dream almost becomes the atmosphere of the the game. And it's kind of a little bit disturbing that you import the virtual world into your your own virtual world that isn't virtual, but it feels virtual. Mm, Definitely. I feel like the kind of media you consume when tracks with a young age definitely creates your subconscious mental architecture. 90s video games and films are just always, always there. So this dream that sort of was the inception of the poem is that a computer game dream or yeah it was I think it was even two-dimensional 
there was that same sense of freedom and frustration. This freedom of being able to jump freely through a forest, but also knowing that you would reach a point where you wouldn't be able to go any further. You mentioned earlier the frustration of these platform games and having to go back to the start. And there's something about that that made me think of poetry, I guess. There is a lot of trial and error in poetry, maybe. Yeah, I think there's that same combination of freedom and frustration. You start with this feeling that you can write about anything or in, in any way, and then quickly these kind of roadblocks emerge that force you in a certain direction. There are always these kind of laws to this world which you conjure that mean you end up taking the course which the game wants you to take. Well, that's what I find at least. You think it's happening somehow spontaneously, but actually it's not. Maybe there's a way in which that's what happens when you're writing a poem as well. There's some force that's leading you. And I think that's why explicitly trying to let dreams dictate what I write has been an important way to try and remove some of the harnesses. Having previously not wanted to pay attention to dreams, are you now paying more attention to other dreams you're having? Or I think so. I don't think you can get away with writing that many explicit dream poems, but definitely trying to follow those different trains of thought that dreams dictate. There can be something about a dream world that twists enough that when you put it in a poem, it can be an interesting slant that feels weird, mm. but you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, no, another dream poem. Yeah, thing. yeah. Though I really like dream poems in general now. I think they're just, I've been, other people's dreams are always really interesting. I've never really got the not. Yeah, that thing where, oh, other people's dreams are really boring. I'm like, no, they're super fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most people don't seem to realize how interesting their dreams are, which is probably why they find them boring. And which is why it's always really fun to hear people talk about them. One thing about dreams that I find interesting is the way things can merge and interweave and that that's something that poems do really yeah. well. Yeah, the weird logic that can seem totally normal and fine in a dream, mm. and that, but if that happened in real life, it wouldn't make sense. Like, you know that someone is your dad, but they're also like a tiny green frog. That's a dream I had once. That's a dream you had, really. <laughs> Did you write about that? I mean, this was when I was a child, so, I, but I've just always remembered that. Yeah, that's such a great dream. I wanted to also ask you about your forthcoming book. How is it going? How far is it from being finished? How does it feel to be writing your first mm. full-length book? It feels really strange trying to finish a poetry book because it's not like a novel which is dictated by like plot and character. It feels like it could be very close to being finished or it yeah. could take years <laughs> more work. I mean, it's been really exciting thinking about it now as a book and the possibilities that brings. I've been trying to look more widely at different ways poets have worked with the book as a form to see what I can can do mm. in terms of the arrangement of poems and the ordering and whether to use a contents page how to do that how to use titling sequencing all of that and that's quite exciting because I didn't really think about it my work in that way before it was just like a document that's been exciting but I'm still not sure how close to being finished it is most people I know who put together poetry books have had that sense of how do you know when it's done some people do I guess have that sense of completion but other people just have to sort of let it go and then it feels done through virtue of eventually being irrevocably printed and out there <laughs> yeah as a final question I'll ask the sort of obvious question but it's always interesting how you got into writing poetry is it something you'd always done or did you have an epiphany one day that you wanted to become a mm. poet I started writing when I was in my mid-teens I was probably a bit of a contrarian and in those days, poetry wasn't cool. So it felt like the thing <laughs> I should be doing. 
I guess I liked listening to the hip hop when I was a bit younger and then I was got really into jazz and then poetry just seemed like the natural next <laughs> the next step. Yeah, it seems a logical next platform to leap onto. It did feel like there was a bit of a eureka moment when I just started combining words randomly and it was really fun to just play the sounds of words off each other. I remember writing a poem called The Rat King when I was Sounds great. 15. Yeah, it was great. It was really fun. It was a really fun. <laughs> Can we end fun the podcast with a reading of the rat? King? I wish I could remember, but I think I deleted all, all trace That's of it. A shame. <laughs> I think it was probably quite offensive as well. Yeah, I probably got a lot of mileage out of the rhyme of fat and rat, that kind of thing. The fat rat sat on the mat, dangling a cat from his lap. <laughs> I think that could, that could be something that, in that. That kind of thing. <laughs> and were there any writers that really stuck out for you then? I think maybe Wallace Stevens was the first poet I ever really thought was amazing. And so in line with being a bit of a contrarian, I think I like poets who I couldn't fully understand, but who just made really good sounds. So I really liked early Auden poems. They were really amazing. This lunar beauty. I really liked Harmonium. Liked a lot of imagism, that kind of thing. I Stuff can definitely that was see the Wallace Stevens somehow and... influence in there. I liked John Ashbery a lot. Got into Franco Horror a bit later. I was obsessed with self-portrait in a convex mirror because I'm putting together this book now. I've been trying to think about why I ever wrote poems or was ever, ever thought it would be a good idea. I've been kind of remembering what I liked about it, which was the sense of those poets I liked, the ones who I just mentioned, gave me something that I could then make myself. I always thought of poetry as this blueprint, of something that you then constructed. I think for a long time in my unsuccessful writing bad poem phase I lost sight of that aspect and I think it's really easy to lose sight of that sense that you're making something to give to the reader it doesn't have to be this complete perfectly constructed thing the more important part of it is what the reader then makes that makes me think of a poem of yours in your pamphlet all this is implied Beagle, which I'm just looking at now it starts Break of ours, says Derek Walcott, and the love that reassembles the pieces will be stronger than the love that took its symmetry for granted. And then you've got this line, I want a love that's unassimilated, sharp as broken pots. So that's from Derek Walcott's Nobel acceptance speech. And it's really kind of beautiful in sentiment. But to me, it doesn't ring true. Or what made me think of the pressure to assimilate that's forced on minority communities and that actually there's something beautiful in the kind of brokenness or mm. the shardness of different people coexisting and not having to cohere, not having to be melted down to the same thing. That to me is what's exciting about poetry as well, that you give someone this unassimilated mass or like partially assimilated and that they then put it together themselves. I think that's what I wanted to yeah. do in the, the White Jumper, not to tie it all together, but to to let it exist as this kind of pure potential which the reader could then make into their own thing something that was more meaningful for them than it could possibly be if I had just made it meaningful for me if I just enforced my own meaning on it that's a really lovely way to think about poetry and a nice way to conclude the podcast well we're not completely conclude it because we're going to hear the final section from the white jumper thank you please <laughs> thank you in April, children chased each other round the garden. I thought of the white jumper and the black hood worn by hangmen to hide the world and keep its wearer hidden, to denote sin and to keep it out. 
Theophil Gautier dreamed of white swan women singing and swimming down the Rhine, each one whiter than white down, but one among them Claire de Lune, pure, trailing boreal fumes, breasts like bunched camellias, a blanched battle of satin and paros marble, communion host and candle, of what white was her whiteness made? Pallor of alabaster, duvet of dove, lactic drop and lily, crystal ondine, mother of God. At the end of 2001, people gathered outside the mosque. A mother pushing a pram held a white placard in the other hand. I watched her from my parents' room, the sky like drinking water through a straw. Frederick Nietzsche recounts a dream. Once the distance between us was so small, you could have crossed over to me by footbridge. Cross it, I said to you. Cross over to me. But you didn't want to. And when I asked again, you were silent. Now mountains and rivers have come between us, and at the mention of the footbridge you cry. The next morning in the breakfast queue, the man taking room numbers asked why I was in town. I said I was giving a poetry reading. That's odd, he replied, and moved on to a children's writer. At Leeds, a kid was hanging by the barriers. The station manager stared at him. What's he doing? Being a little rascal, said Kamar. He started to walk away before looping back, then jumped the barrier and ran. Run, jump, run, run, run. Thank you so much, Will. That was really wonderful to hear the poem and, well, to talk about all these different sparks coming off it. You can read The White Jumper in the winter 2018 issue of the magazine, as well as Will's Behind the Poem piece on the Poetry Society website. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us, Will, and goodbye. Thank you, Emily. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.